You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 185. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Pontus Böckmann. See ya! Hey, son, hey, son. How are you? I'm exhausted, but <laughs> thanks very much for asking. Uh, but that I have a reason for that because I just came home from the other end of the planet, or not not quite the other end, but I was in Canada. I just arrived. Yeah, I landed here this this morning, and it was it was quite an adventurous way home. Yeah, what about you? Yeah, well, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's is it hot where you are as well? Because we've had uh, 30 degrees today in Malmo. Yes. Wow. Yeah. It's unusual. Yeah, or well, it's it's getting more and more usual. Yeah, well, it's the planet is getting hotter, but this is has been at least in the past unusual. Thirty degrees is a little bit more than we are used mm-hmm. to. But uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it. We have the, as I said in another episode, we have this little pool outside on the on the grass, yeah. so I can relax there if it gets too bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well. At least, uh, are there any fires going on in uh, Scandinavia, or y- uh, you are for now free for, from those? Uh, no fires that I know of in Sweden, but of course we all know about uh, what's happening in the Amazons. And oh, yeah. uh, also, I must tell you, there is this... Cra- <laughs> People do the most crazy shit. <laughs> of course, everybody's talking about the fires in the Amazonas, and... That's understandable. It's a terrible thing. And of course, it concerns the whole world. So everybody's scrambling to help. But some so-called help is more useful than others. I saw this one group online calling for a global meditation to start rain in the Amazonas. Or the, did you say the Amazonas or the Amazons? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't Amazons, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, we can pray for the coming of the Amazons, but uh, that's a different thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, if you missed it, guys, on Sunday evening at nine o'clock Swedish time, that's CET Central European time, you should have all have prayed and meditated and also danced a little bit of a rain dance to end the the problems in in the Amazonas. And it, I mean, good luck with that. and this was not i believe a a religious group but sort of a spiritual group of course but still it reminds me of what i talked about last week pope francis sending rosaries to syria for some reason this is magical Mm. thinking and it really diverts people's energy to do something that it's actually useful Mm -hmm. so yes you you could say there's no harm in believing in stuff, and of course you should be allowed to believe whatever you want to. But this is this has consequences because it creates an illusion that you're doing something when you're just wasting your time, and it may even take away your urge to send real help because you your mind in your mind you think you've already done something, so because you meditated oh, yeah. for it, so your conscience is clear and you have accomplished nada. So it's not entirely. Uh, harmless to believe in crazy shit it's my opinion i've seen a a lot of crowdfunding projects going on as well however i have no idea what those who initiated these projects actually try to achieve with this obviously when it comes to government forces that get the money on the day of the recording they have just announced that 20 million euros will be allocated Mm. by the g7 to the fight against the fire in amazonia and when foreign aid is coming in that i understand but random people just starting crowdfunding for saving amazonia that looks a little bit out of I don't know. It's a little bit off for me. I yeah. mean, but uh, yeah, praying and meditating for Amazonia—that's definitely just just nonsense. And, and uh, hashtag pray for Amazonia. Yeah, is still pretty big on Twitter. Uh, no, act in Amazonia or do something about Amazonia. Save Amazonia. That's a useful hashtag. That is something that we can use as a motto or something like a. A call for something about pray for Amazonia, unless if it is praying for the souls of those animals and all the forest that is gone. Yeah. Because 
Yeah. <laughs> Pray for them that God keeps them close to his heart. It's heart. Sorry, his heart. Whatever. I don't know if God is an is a thing or a, a person. Yeah, yeah. So that <laughs> you know, I I think you know what I mean. Yeah, so don't pray for Amazonia. It's completely useless. But there is another thing that I I came across on Snopes and uh, obviously we expect that to happen every single time that that something goes viral that very very uh, sensationalizing photos are circulating on the on the interwebs. Snopes made a, a little bit of a compilation of a couple of them and turns out that several of them have not even been shot around the area of Amazonia or not now, but many, many years earlier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But people still use it without questioning the source and the actual date. So it's it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. But more and more experts agree that it's thanks to the global climate change that different areas are becoming more arid, more prone to wildfires, and it's very difficult. It's a complicated and big system. But one thing is for sure, that a lot of places are getting warmer. And by getting warmer, a lot of places that are actually usually covered by ice are losing these ice shields and ice fields and the, this volume of ice and one of the, the examples is Iceland mm. so um, in Iceland they recently held a mock funeral to a glacier yeah I saw that <laughs> yeah I don't know if I'm pronouncing it well but it's Ökjökul yeah, yeah. Ökjökul well I think your um, Icelandish is as good as mine so let's go with that <laughs> <laughs> okay I, I don't know so for, for some reason in my mind all the nordic languages must have something in common so this is this is where the assumption comes yeah. from that uh, your your icelandic must be better than mine yeah yeah maybe so. but icelandish is a bit hard to understand uh, even in writing i can get through mm -hmm. some but it's it's hard <laughs> it's hard Oh, wow. So um, I came across that on uh, the BBC's website and uh, I started looking around, but it's very shocking. I mean, the, the general numbers are shocking in themselves. Yeah. So this July was the warmest ever on record, at least for Iceland. They claim that 11 billion tons of ice are lost in Iceland per year. Wow. Which is... It's a number that you cannot wrap your head around. And I found a couple of similar figures. Uh, if if that keeps happening, that means that by 2200, all the glaciers of, of Iceland will be gone. Yeah. That is terrible. So this mock funeral was uh, held by and organized by uh, local researchers and mm -hmm. uh, university of in the United States, Rice University. And uh, there was quite a big turnout there. They claimed that uh, there were hundreds of people, mostly scientists. But Iceland's prime minister was there, mm -hmm. Katrin Jakobsdottir. Mm -hmm. I hope I didn't butcher the name. Uh, that sounds fine to me. And the former High Commissioner for Human Rights of the United Nations, Mary Robinson, was also there, mm. along with a lot of scientists. That really tells us that high-ranking politicians are taking it very seriously. Mm. And why wouldn't they? Yeah. In glaciology, which is the science of uh, the glaciers and uh, and the ice, they stripped the Jökull, the glacier, of its title, uh, a status as a glacier, five years ago. Mm. And I think this is very important. They left a plaque that reads, it says, A Letter to the Future. Uk is the first Icelandic glacier to lose its status as a glacier. In the next 200 years, all our glaciers are expected to follow the same path. This mon monument is to acknowledge that we know what is happening and what needs to be done. Only you know if we did it. Wow. August 2019. And they also added... The latest measurement of carbon dioxide concentration, which is at 415 ppm parts per million. So we'll see, I'm afraid we'll see more and more of those plaques popping up here and there uh, where glaciers used to be. Yeah. You know, I traveled to Canada and uh, I've been going over there for 10 years and some of the glaciers have receded massively within that time frame. That, and that is shocking. 
I can put together my photos taken of a couple of glaciers and you can see the difference. Mm. It's heartbreaking to see. But on the other hand, I am a terrible motherfucker who goes on a plane every single time. <laughs> and you lead others to do the same because you're exactly. a tour guide. You get everybody to join you as well. Actually, it has been bothering me for a while. Mm. It's something that I should probably consider not doing. But uh, that's my job. That is what I do for a living. Yeah. So uh, it's definitely not an easy decision to make. Still, we just have to deal with this somehow. Yeah. There are articles popping up here and there about what the best way of traveling. Uh, for example, now that uh, Greta Thun Thunberg, uh, how do you, how do you pronounce actually her, her name? It's a hard T. The, the, they just ignore the H. So it's Thunberg. Thunberg. Greta Thunberg. Okay, sorry. Uh, so, Greta, I think we've all heard of her. She was like 12 years old when she started campaigning, <laughs> and now she's 16. Well, I, actually, she was 15. It was just last year. It was oh, just, just last year? The other day marked the first anniversary of her first uh, protest outside the Swedish I... parliament. Oh, sorry, because I read something, or probably it was just that she started talking in her school or to her... Oh, perhaps. Her, her, I, d I don't um, know that. But it was a year ago she started with a, a more public uh, yeah, demonstration. Yeah. yeah, sorry, sorry. I'm giving out misleading information. But yeah, as I read somewhere that, that she was 12 when she first spoke up against climate change. Okay. That something has to be done. Mm -hmm. Because of her sailing to the UN Climate Conference in New York, the BBC started to do some digging into all the data, what we can do and what is the best way to travel. And flying is the worst possible. <laughs> and the other terrible way of traveling is when you're driving a car on your own. Traffic jams are all about people driving on their own, yeah. right? And if it's a traffic jam, you don't even get anywhere. So you're just burning fuel as you stand exactly. still. Exactly. So. Okay, you don't burn that much as when you're accelerating, but it's still burning there and carbon dioxide and all those other pollutants do get emitted. So it's basically common sense, right? That trains are probably the best way to travel or um, if you share a car. And the trains, how much trains add to the global carbon dioxide emissions depend obviously on what kind of train. If it's an electric train, then it still depends on where electricity comes from. Mm. They bring up the example of um, Poland, when if you do a long journey in Poland, close to 500 kilometers, then you emit 61.8 kilograms of carbon dioxide. Mm. But the Paris to Bordeaux, that's less than one-tenth of that the carbon dioxide emission. Because in Poland, electricity comes from burning coal. Yes, of course. Whereas yeah. in France, it mostly comes from nuclear. Uh, nuclear. Yeah. It is very complicated, and we should all be aware of that. So I'm happy to say that they say that a Eurostar, carbon-wise, it's a pretty good way to travel. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy to report when I'm going to the UK from the European Skeptics Congress, I'm traveling from Brussels to London and I'm going to take the Eurostar. That's going to be the first Good time. For you. I'm very excited about that. Good for you. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to finish my rant. <laughs> but <laughs> one of the things that we should really consider by now, maglevs, they are an existing technology it would be an ideal solution. Yes, it could absolutely. all be electrified because of lowering the friction by levitating the thing with a magnet. It's the most efficient way of traveling. And uh, for some reason, it's not on the table. It should be. Yeah, I guess it's expensive. But, but yeah, I, I do agree. But then, of course, there are some distances you can't make that. I mean, you can't go to Canada from Europe. Yeah, but on continental Europe, the technologies there what we need is political will and the money the funding allocated to it mm. okay that's <laughs> stop. <laughs> rant over I'll, st I'll stop <laughs> preaching for now yeah okay we do have um quite a jam-packed script for this week's episode so shall we crack on with it i think so okay so although yalan is not here 
I will take on talking about something that happened this week in skepticism. And it is a birthday, actually, mm-hmm. on the 29th of August, on the day the European Skeptics Congress commences, mm-hmm. in 1632, an English philosopher and physician was born by the name John Locke. Mm-hmm. Why he is important for us skeptics? Because, w- one, he is considered one of the fathers of the Enlightenment, one of the fathers of liberalism, but that doesn't necessarily have to do anything with skepticism. But he's widely regarded as one of the first empiricists as well in Britain. He's come up with a couple of very important ideas. So he came up with um, different definitions to consciousness and how the human mind works. He considered the human mind as a blank slate or tabula rasa, which is a Latin The basic idea of that is that when we are born, we are born without any kind of innate ideas that come with us, uh, come from our, our biology. We are like a blank slate that we can write on. Everything is determined by what input it gets and what sensual perceptions that we have. That is the basis of empiricism. Why it's really important is that he went a bit further down in that road and he said that even though that blank slate has to be written on, whatever we write on it is not necessarily carved in it. It can be discovered not to be true. And if it's the case, then we just need to clean it and need to try to adjust it and write something else sounds very skeptical yes exactly that's the reason why i i wanted to bring him up there is a very widely used quote of his words and that goes whatever i write as soon as i discover it not to be true my hand shall be the forwardest to throw it into the fire Mm -hmm. so i think it sums it up pretty well. He had a a, a lot of different ideas about religion and religious tolerance as well. He he determined the basis of modern liberalism, or at least he's one of those who established it in a political sense. He was a very open and and liberal-minded person, but this is probably the most important for us skeptics, that whatever we learn, if our experience and evidence shows otherwise, then we we just have to be ready to throw away whatever our previous thoughts were, our previous beliefs about a thing. Yeah, so John Locke. Very good. All right. Uh, So the next thing that we need to do is poking the Pope. So Pontus, would you please? Yes, my pleasure, of course. (laughs) <laughs> and I will talk. Poking the Pope is my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> I will uh, actually continue a little bit on what we talked about last week, uh, Cardinal mm-hmm. Pell, because the Cardinal Pell saga is not over yet for the Vatican. <laughs> As we reported on last week, Cardinal George Pell was denied an appeal in Australia, and he has one last chance, and that is to go to the Australian High Court within 28 days, counting from the 21st of August, he can have some hope that he will take up the case. But I I doubt it. I'm I'm not sure. But we'll see. We'll see. But some analysts have pointed out the dilemma that the Vatican faces if the High Court doesn't take up the appeal or if they find him guilty as well, as the previous instances have. There is our favorite Catholic body, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which of course used to be known as the Inquisition. And they have been standing by this whole time to perform their own trial against Pell because they are the ones that should take care of things within the church. Secular law isn't good enough for the Vatican. <laughs> they, need, they want to do it themselves as well. But with Pell convicted, any result uh, they arrive at will be criticized because they can either confirm Pell's guilt But that will make them seem very weak and irrelevant, just following the lead of the Australian court system. And there are two reasons why this would be problematic for them. One is that Pell has a lot of supporters in Rome, 
and he has had very high offices there and he's very popular among his fellow cardinals. The other reason is that you could argue that there are some question marks in the conviction. The assault is said to have taken place where there was a lot of people around, but not in the same room where it happened. And a lot has been made of the fact that Pell was wearing very heavy clothing. This is so, somewhat ridiculous, but it's, it was very important in the trial. And to be <laughs> blunt, <laughs> this <laughs> had him say that he wouldn't easily have been able to get his dick out. Well, actually, that he didn't put it that way. That's my wording. But <laughs> it was... What? Yeah, that was one of the defenses he had. So uh, it's ridiculous. I, I'm sure he, if he really wanted to, I'm sure he knew how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, the, the problem is with this is that I, I actually imagined Cardinal Pell flashing his willy. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't boy. have. Now, now that image is stuck with you. I'm sorry. And but... probably also our <laughs> listeners. Yeah, <laughs> yes. We should. If it makes it we should show. have <laughs> trigger warnings before we do these segments. But okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, just. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but finally, also, the whole case is based on the testimony of only one victim, since the other one uh, tragically passed away in 2015. So that's enough to sow some doubt, if you really want to. So that's the problems of a guilty verdict. But on the other hand, if the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith decides to free Pell, then they will be accused of protecting a molester just because he was a high-ranking church official. So it's a sort of a damned if they do and damned if they don't kind of situation. Uh, and uh, it's, it's not so easy for them. And it's, it'll be interesting to see where it will end up because they're standing by and as soon as the appeal has run its course and there will be no more appeal, they will continue with their own investigation, which is formally already started, but they're, they're waiting. Mm. And uh, it's also going to be very interesting that in the end, we may get a direct statement by Francis who has so far chosen to be very quiet about the thing. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder if it's um, if it's a tactical thing, or he really doesn't have anything to say, or do, or he really doesn't feel like he should say something about all this. I I think it's tactical. If if I were him, there's no there's no upside to whatever he says. Will only draw more focus to the problem. And whatever he says can be criticized both from the right or the left. Or, I mean, from both sides of the story. So I, I think he, the less talked about it, the better is what I think he is thinking. Yeah, from a PR point of view, yes. Yeah. Yes, but yeah. if you are the leader of the Catholic Church and the moral leader of the world, or at least you want to be considered as, as such, both versions shed a terrible light on you yeah i mean if you don't feel like you should say something as a moral leader then what makes you a moral leader because you're you're not moral enough Mm. to be that moral leader and if you feel like it but because of a pr consideration you fail to say something then fuck you you're a cynicism (laughs) you're a cynical a cynical motherfucker (laughs) yeah yeah so uh Keep poking him. Yeah. <laughs> I will. All right. Thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you. Moving on. A lot of things have been happening since since last week. So let's turn our skeptical ears towards them. And first, let's see what's going on in Germany. Uh, now that we mentioned the PR... I think it's a brilliant PR stunt that one of the uh, cities in uh, northwestern Germany did. It, it was uh, brilliant. So, let's start from the beginning. This There is a city called Bielefeld. Or is there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I've heard of this well, as well. <laughs> according to documents, even medieval documents from the 13th century, it has been there since then. 
And okay. it's uh, quite a historic place. And uh, according to historical chronology, it all adds up pretty nicely. And, well, obviously, it exists. If you go there, if you follow the map, <laughs> the city is there. However, in 1994, someone, as a joke, posted on a web page an article saying that the city doesn't actually exist. Uh, because it is just a conspiracy that has led us to believe that that the city exists. Uh, Yeah, since it has been going on for 25 years, unfortunately, a couple of people, more and more people, actually take it seriously, uh, apparently, in Germany. (laughs) It's called the the Bielefeld conspiracy now. Hmm. So the city's government, the city council, came up with a brilliant idea of offering 1 million euros to anyone who can prove reliably and undeniably that the city does not exist. I I think this is brilliant. If it's proven that it doesn't exist, who will pay out the money? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You can't win. Who who will give you the money? There is no. If there is no city, there is no city council to offer you the money. So fuck (laughs) off. (laughs) I think it's it's a brilliant PR stunt. Uh, they say no matter how creative they are in their ideas if they can irrefutably prove that the city doesn't exist it means one million euros will be paid well then you have to prove a negative which we have said you can't do so there's another way out of this you know if i were someone in the city council i would launch a project an actual educational project that, that talks about this as well that you cannot prove Ooh. a negative. That's, that's, that's one good. thing. There's lots of different falsehoods, bad arguments, and logical fallacies that could be taught through the example of this, right? Yeah. yeah. And obviously the city council says that they are 99.9% sure that <laughs> they exist. no one will come <laughs> oh. up with the, with the right evidence. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. It's that's <laughs> yeah, funny. It's funny, it's and great. it's not a small city actually. It's I, I think uh, I, I checked on Wikipedia, and I think it's more than three hundred thousand people living uh, there. So that's what they want you to think. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> According to Snow, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Wikipedia is a massive conspiracy. Anyway, we know it for 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 a fact yeah. because we are involved. <laughs> And uh, according to Snopes, I couldn't find a source, but uh, they say that even German Chancellor Angela Merkel once played a joke on that and, uh, and really? said that uh, Bielefeld probably doesn't exist. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so the the Bielefeld conspiracy is a real thing. The conspiracy is a real thing, or at least the conspiracy theory is a real thing. Uh, but I'm surprised that it goes back so far as in 1994. Because we talk about conspiracy theories, and of course I've known, or we know that there's been conspiracy theories for forever, really. Yeah. But it was created as a joke on conspiracy theories online, which in 1994, yes. who, who was online in 1994? I don't know. Yeah, it's the beginning of the internet era. It's yeah. a, v- a very, very beginning of it. Yeah, yeah that occurred to me too, that... But probably that was one of the reasons why people believed it as ah. reality instead of taking it as satire. Yeah, I guess. I read a, I read an article on uh, The Conversation uh, recently, and uh, they go into detail about a survey that they did. It was a study that lasted for six months on uh, social media and how misinformation is being perceived. It was conducted on Americans, so obviously they tried to determine whether the political affiliations or the political leaning will determine what you believe and what you don't believe. And it's phenomenal how much of a connection they they could find. Mm-hmm. They, they had a very large sample of uh, of like 800 people and uh, they seem to have had a very strict and thorough protocol for that we know for a fact but we have our own experience but it's anecdotal obviously that a lot of people do believe everything that is supposed to be taken as satire think of the colbert report for example I don't yeah. know if you watched it when when it was on, but there are news outlets, uh, satirical news outlets, The Onion, The Mesh Report. Oh, the, sorry, it's a Mesh Report. It's a different thing. It's a Daily Mesh. I think those should all be known to be satirical, 
but people sometimes just cannot distinguish. Yeah. Uh, just just one more thing. I think that's hilarious. It's also in Germany. Have you ever heard of the f- uh, phantom time hypothesis? Not sure. Maybe. There is a guy in Germany by the name Heribert Illig. Illig. Um, I don't know how to pronounce his name. But he published a book that said a large chunk of medieval history close to 300 oh, years yes. were completely made up. Yeah, yeah, I have heard about this. <laughs> yes. That is a very bold claim. <laughs> it's not just based on a couple of documents. It's all interwoven and different scientific fields have determined those dates of different historical events. But <laughs> he just claims boldly that it was a conspiracy by one of the Holy Roman Emperors, Pope Sylvester II, and uh, one of the Constantines of uh, the Byzantine Emperors. Yeah, they fabricated three, almost 300 years of history. The problem, from my <laughs> perspective, is that it was a history of us as well. I mean, Hungarians came <laughs> into the Carpathian Basin, where we are living now, around 895 and 96. That falls within that time frame. So we are screwed as well. But he wanted to, because he got criticized for that as well. So he published another book that addressed that very problem. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. It's an interesting story. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Enough of the the alternative (laughs) things. Okay. So uh, speaking of misinformation, let's go to France. In uh, way back in episode 103, that was in December 2017, we handed out a really wrong award to a Nobel laureate, a certain Luc Montagnier. And he received received first, before he got the really wrong award, he received a Nobel Prize in 1983 for identifying the HIV virus. So that was very well deserved. But over time, however, he has uh, come out more and more as an anti-vaxxer nut, speaking about all kinds of made-up risks with vaccinations. And among other things, he has claimed that vaccinations increase the risk for SIDS, or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. What is it about certain Nobel Prize winners that they cannot stop spreading nonsense in areas where they are not an expert? This even has a name. It's called the Nobel disease. And one of the more infamous ones, of course, is Linus Pauling, who spread the whole vitamin C craze in the 70s, which we still... Well, it's still a multi-billion business every year, and it has almost no basis in reality whatsoever. Anyway... Back to Luc Montagnier. The ideas that he has spread in France are still so prevalent that the newspaper Le Monde this week went out with an article to explain, again, that there is no link between vaccinations and SIDS. Luc Montagnier's ideas have generated many followers online, and one fake fact that's been spreading, and you can see it in many places, is that 79% of all SIDS-related deaths occur on the same day as the child has received a vaccination. And that number is totally made up. Totally made up. But But you can find it on many different websites, so it makes it credible. Our American friend, David Gorski, also known online as ORAC, has written about why Luc Montagnier's ideas are totally bonkers, and we will link to that article which we linked to almost two years ago. Uh, We will link to it again uh, on this episode. But I I, want to give kudos to Le Monde for trying to keep things straight and writing about this and to educate the public. But it's hard to debunk myths, especially the ones that are propagated by Nobel laureates. Yeah, Yeah, because people respect authority. Yeah, yeah. And uh, not necessarily evidence. So what we need is critical thinking. On the pages of Nature, the journal, the International Journal of Science, on the 12th of August, a comment article was published, authored by 25 researchers. So it was an alliance of researchers led by Andrew D. Oxman. They came up with a key concept for making informed choices. Uh, it's not a recipe. It's an interesting walkthrough 
on a, a couple of the key elements of how people avoid critical thinking and how we could uh, try to move slightly towards educating them into critical thinking and giving them the means and ammunition to go against or, or not necessarily accept everything as fact that is uh, bonkers. There are a couple of things uh, how they, they advise us on how to uh, approach different claims and how to make claims when we are trying to make an argument for or against something. So try to communicate how science works. Try not to communicate in superlatives, like no large and dramatic effects, because it's very rare in science. Yeah. But that kind of sensationalism is what journalists need and publishers need for their articles to be popular, right? It's what we call clickbait. Yeah. There are different in interventions when it comes to medical and health-related uh, issues. They advise us not to make claims based on just seemingly logical assumptions. Because that something seems logical, please don't think that it defines something. If it's logical, but it lacks the scientific basis because of the lack of evidence for it to work, then obviously the logical assumption does not work. And uh, uh, source. So they they say, and it's very nice to see it written down by scientists, by researchers. Even if you trust a source, it's not a sufficient basis for believing a claim. Just because a scientist said it, it's not necessarily true. Just because a Nobel laureate said it, <laughs> it's not necessarily true, right? Mm. So... And, and it, they go on and on and on about it. It's it's worth checking out that article. It's uh, I, I couldn't go through the whole thing anyway. So I do recommend everyone to read that article. Obviously, we will link it. Uh, we'll link to it. Yeah. Very good. All right. Another topic here uh, in Scotland. Earlier this year in episode 166, we talked about Scotland and how... They have a stupid rule there that means that the school boards need to have unelected church officials on the board as well as the elected ones. That's not at all appropriate in a secular society. We, when we talked about it, it was about the municipality of Kinross, but it started a change to happen. Uh, and as a consequence, in Edinburgh, the Green Party put forward a motion for the city council to remove the three Catholic religious representatives from the school board there. It's not clear how they feel about non-Catholic religious representatives, because they have those as well, I guess. But even removing the Catholics isn't done yet, because the Archbishop of Edinburgh, Leo Cushley, got, he got busy, and he mobilized parents and others to fight this. And, and the current status is that on 22nd of August, the motion was delayed by the city council and is to be brought up again in November. And a council spokesperson said, and I quote, The council has agreed to continue the report and to organize a series of meetings with the faith community to examine their present relationship with the council and explore how the engagement on the voting rights of the religious representatives can be modernized. No, I don't agree. <laughs> Religious freedom should also mean that you should be free from religion and reli if you want to, and religion should stay out of education. The so-called faith community, for some reason they spell it with capital letters just to make sure that it's prestigious or something, they shouldn't have anything to say about education, especially since the religious representatives are not elected to the board as the other members are. And, and again, this was about the Catholic representatives, which makes me a little bit wondering, because Scotland is predominantly Protestant. And they justify it in a way, because that's really silly, because they say it's okay, because the Catholic representatives, quote, typically abstain from voting on issues not related to Catholic schools, unquote. But that must mean that they can sometimes, and they do occasionally vote in matters regarding secular or Protestant schools. But I don't see 
why there has to be religious representatives on any school board. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we'll see how... What uh, Obviously, it's now being questioned. And uh, I guess this is... a. I think this rule was... Or this law was about a hundred years old or so. So I, I, I guess it's a, you don't change that overnight. But at, at least the wheels have been put in motion now in Scotland to try to get rid of the religious influence on the school boards. So I'll, let's just hope that they they do that as quickly as possible. Yeah, but I think we agree that for something like that to happen that the general public questions things and the status of things like the church or anti-vaxxers or anything to be shaken, you have to have wide publicity. Yeah. For that, we need journalists. Hmm. Some organizations get that. I think your organization, VOF, has a prize in support of science and skepticism, right? Yes, absolutely. So you have a positive and a negative prize as well. Yeah. Yeah, so many other organizations do have it. This year, Cicap, the Italian organization, will award not one journalist, but a group of journalists by the name Valigia Blu, which means blue suitcase. I don't know where the name comes from. I couldn't, couldn't <laughs> okay. find it out. Yeah. It's, it's basically a news portal run by individuals. They cover a lot of stories that many news outlets fear to cover and shy away from covering, like uh, criticizing the Pope. In Italy, it's a big thing. Uh, criticizing the anti-vaccination movement and the anti-vaxxers, even if they're politicians, criticizing politicians for bad decisions when it comes to climate and everything. So they do a very important job in serving the public need. On the 15th of September, on Sunday, the third day of uh, Cicap Fest in Padova, in Italy, they will get the Cicap Award who will take the award in the name of Blue Suitcase, Valigia Blue, will be Arianna Ciccone. Mm-hmm. And I can't wait to be there because this is this is an, yet another thing that makes me want to be there right now. And she will give a talk as well afterwards on uh, how to communicate science, how to build trust in society, what the role of journalists and journalism is in the digital information age. And uh, instead of polarizing the public, how to try to build bridges. That is something that uh, we very much subscribe to, right? <laughs> Sounds like this show, uh, what we try to do oh, on yeah. this show. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. So, uh, yeah, Valija Blue is the name that gets uh, the, the award for the defense of reason, 2019. All right. Awarded by Cicap, the, the Italian skeptical organization. Great. And I will be there. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We have to talk about measles every episode, it seems. (laughs) So that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Long-time listeners with good memories may remember that as of 2016, UK got the status measles-free by the WHO, the World Health Organization. Well, as you can imagine... No more of that. I'm actually surprised that it took this long. But on 18th of August, the UK Department of Health and Social Care announced that the WHO had declared that the UK has lost that status. That cannot come as a big surprise for listeners to this show. Uh, they were There were about 300 confirmed cases of measles in uh, 2017. And last year, there were almost a thousand And for the first six months this year, there was about 500 cases. Also, there's no surprise that most cases have concerned persons who have not been vaccinated. In the UK, about 95% of children aged five have received their first shot, which is good. But only just over 87% end up getting the second and required dose. We know that you need to reach 95% also on the second dose before you can keep the disease under control. So not surprising that they lose this status, but you could... I want to talk a little bit. The status of measles-free can be a bit confusing, though, because it sounds like if you are measles-free, the disease is totally gone. That's not the case. The definition to have a disease eliminated, according to the WHO, is that you no longer have a circulation of the disease. 
but you can still have local isolated cases confined to minor communities and that was the situation in 2016. But with the results from last year and the trend continuing, that's no longer the case in the UK, of course. And uh, don't hold your breath for that to change anytime soon, with the vaccination rates being so low as they are, uh, and also the ongoing epidemic in the world. Hmm. Speaking of measles, by the way, I just want to interject something here. I come Oh, <laughs> good choice of words. Inject- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I commented on the Serbian measles cases last week, where the number of cases reported are clearly much too low. I mean, they, they, we talk about 5,000 cases plus last year, and then for the first six months, I think it was 14. That, that can't be right. And I tried during this week to find local numbers from other sources that are more correct, but I couldn't find any. Uh, Google Translate only takes you so far when you don't know exactly where to look. And so I want to request, if anybody out there listening can read Serbian and or knows which Serbian website you could go on to see the local reported numbers, it would be great if you could uh, get in touch with us at Mm -hmm. info at the ESP.eu because I'm really curious what the situation is in Serbia at the moment. Yeah, and we would we would love to hear from Serbian skeptics anyway. Oh yeah, it would be great to mm-hmm. to get in touch uh, mm-hmm. with someone from Serbia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I would like to continue that line of thought about uh, vaccines and vaccination, and especially measles, because of what you mentioned. The uptake needs to be above ninety five so that herd immunity is achieved. And it's something that a lot of countries find it more and more difficult to reach. Yeah, yeah. And uh, some are attributed to the rise of uh, anti-vaccine populist forces, especially in Europe, like uh, France, Poland, Italy. Fortunately, Hungary is not among them. I'm very proud of that, <laughs> uh, that fact. Yeah, and a lot of uh, different other movements circulating ideas of, of how to live a clean life that is free from everything, every uh, medical intervention and that kind of stuff. And there have been a couple of surveys about European countries. But recently, it was Australia, where they did a survey asking a thousand people about their views on how they see mandatory vaccination and what their political affiliations and political leanings are. So what they tried to establish is whether there is a connection between their political leaning and how they approach compulsory vaccination. The results of the survey seem very, very nice. I mean, it shows, according to Vaccines Today, that 85% of the people asked agreed with the no-jab-no-pay policy of the federal government of Australia. Mm -hmm. And and only 9% were opposing it, which is pretty good. Only 4% of the people asked thought that vaccines were not safe, not effective, and not necessary. It's pretty good numbers. And they are very different from the numbers of the US and the UK. Yeah. Where about 30% of the people are against compulsory vaccination. And I don't know, different ideas of freedom are being invoked here for uh, why, why they don't want their kids to be vaccinated. And I know it's Australia, but it has relevance to the whole world. Because that means that if it's communicated well, and I'm adding this to it, I think that probably the Australian government communicated this decision of no jab, no pay and the no jab, no play policy. If it's explained well, then people will not necessarily oppose it. And that means that it could be absolutely free from the effects of their political leanings. Even though it gives us a reason to be optimistic, the Australian results, I have to emphasize that it was Australia. And apparently the numbers strongly differ from those in the US and the UK. I haven't come across uh, numbers in other European countries, Mm. but uh, it would be interesting to see how other countries do. The bottom line is, it doesn't necessarily have to be based on what our political decisions and leanings are. 
whether we are anti or pro-vaccination. Hmm. That's a bit surprising to me, but uh, I think it's good. Yeah, this is why I'm trying to emphasize it, that it could be like that, but it's not necessarily the case, mm -hmm. uh, at least not in every country. All right. Yeah, so um, I think uh, we've had enough of the latest happenings across Europe. So why don't you tell us who's been really wrong or really right lately? Yes, I will. We started uh, talking about uh, climate change and glaciers melting on Iceland, etc., There are two researchers at Turku University in Finland, Jyrki mm -hmm. Kaupinen and Pekka Malmi, and they claim that they have proven that climate change is not anthropogenic, that is, not man-made. Da-da-da! So, oh, wait a minute, so they accept <laughs> that climate change is happening, yes, but it's not anthropogenic? No, it's not anthropogenic. Okay. This news was posted also in Helsinki Times and on other sites online, and it's pretty sensational, I believe. Maybe, though, you shouldn't go to Helsinki Times for your science news, but you feel that you should be able to go to Turku University, right? But, yeah, um, of course. Yeah. Maybe no not. Maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> Okay, uh, But I must say, it's not quite clear even that the university itself backs this up. These two guys have just signed a paper with their titles, which is that they are linked to the Turku University. I don't think it's actually a product of the university as such. Ah. Uh, uh, so but, they're just using the university's name. Nice. Yes, yeah, they may be, yeah. So, okay, let's have a look at this so-called research paper. And if you do, it turns out it has a lot of problems. The authors say that they have compared the global cloud coverage with the temperature changes and found that the changes correlate very well. Their conclusion is that it is variation in clouds and not the changed CO2 levels that explains the rising temperatures. Do you see a problem with that, that reasoning, that argument? Yeah. It's yeah. a bit far-fetched. Yes. Because <laughs> they don't have any proof to explain how clouds increase the temperature. They only show yeah. a correlation. And then they speculate, even though they call it a, that they have proven it, it's just a speculation that more clouds create a, a greenhouse effect. But what if higher temperatures increase cloud coverage instead? Correlation does not equal causation. It could be the other way around. Yeah, the skepticism 101. Yeah, it is. It is. Also, they don't show where the data is coming from, the cloud coverage data. They don't say where it comes from. It, they just report it. Mm -hmm. The report is not peer-reviewed. It's only five pages long anyway. And uh, lots of other scientists have come out and rejected the whole study. Uh, some say even it shouldn't even be peer-reviewed because it's so silly. But this kind of reports can still go viral and will be used by climate change deniers. So it's important to try to address this and comment on it anyway, even if it is silly, if it is wrong. So uh, I want to give these two guys... Jyrki Kaupunen and Pekka Malmi, today's prize for being really wrong, because mm. this is obvious nonsense, and even if they're trying to disguise it as real research, it clearly is not. And I also want to give a special mention to Turku University, because they could have by now gone out and distanced themselves from this pseudoscience, but they haven't, as I see, aye, aye, done aye. that. Yeah. Aye, aye, aye. Yeah. It could be just pure ignorance, like like they probably have not even heard of it, but I doubt that. Yeah, I doubt, I doubt that, that. That you're giving them too probably much credit, a, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably a PR decision. Oh, it's it's not big enough for us to to react on it or something. Yeah. Or they agree with them. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's even worse. Yes, it's even worse. <laughs> All right. No, but the truth okay. is, of course, that climate change is anthropogenic. Is widely accepted by i believe by now 99 of all re serious researchers and when i say serious researchers some people say well you just call them serious because you agree with them no that's not what i mean 
what I mean with a serious researcher is a person who do their real research. They clearly indicate what their sources are. They are peer-reviewed and they have considered all the different aspects. That's serious research. This is not serious research. It's trying to appear as research, but it's more like a an opinion piece in my in my opinion. In my opinion, it's an opinion oh. piece. <laughs> random throwing in of ideas yeah yeah all right thank you very much pontus thank you and i believe that this almost concludes our show all that's left is to shoot out with a quote and since yana is not here i'm gonna be giving you and our listeners a quote and uh, since i already talked about john locke today I will have one of his quotes. Ooh. And it goes, False and doubtful positions, relied upon as unquestionable maxims, keep those who build on them in the dark from truth. In the dark. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Very yeah. true. Don't hold your positions too near and dear to your heart because they might have to change at some point. <laughs> if you, if Very you, often. If you rely upon them as unquestionable maxims, you get screwed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, John Locke said it much nicer. but Yeah, but you have to also say it's not just... Sometimes we say you have always have to change your mind. You have to change your mind. Yes. That doesn't mean that everything you built on to begin with has to be wrong. It's yeah. also that you modify it and you refine it. And you so the famous meme is it's not as simple as you thought it was it's always a little bit more yeah. complicated than that and and so that's what you have to be prepared for modify it go along and if necessary throw the whole thing out but very often it's just you build on top the knowledge that you already have yeah and uh what i don't understand is why it is perceived as a bad thing uh, changing your mind especially among politicians yeah I've heard so many times one politician accusing another politician of changing their minds as if it was a terrible thing. Mm. I mean, changing your mind just because the political winds are such, that's one thing. But changing your mind based on the evidence so that you say that, yes, I used to believe that climate change is not anthropogenic, but the evidence actually persuaded me that it is the case. Hmm. So now, from now on, I'm going to be fighting for what we have to do. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. But we have to we have to uh, end the show at some point. We have to go packing. We have to go packing because in a couple of days' time, we're going to be together in Ghent. Yes. Which is in Belgium. And that's where the European Skeptics Congress will take place. Wow, I can't wait. Yeah, that, it'll be really, really fun. So uh, yeah. we'll see what the next episode will bring, but uh, we will bring our microphones and hopefully we will get some nice interviews. And uh, I, I don't know. I don't want to promise anything, but uh, we will have a good time and hopefully we will be able to translate that good time into a good episode for next week as well. That's right. Okay, Pontus. Andras. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Bye-bye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Kisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe
speaking of misinformation, let's go to Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, let's go. <laughs> Sorry, take that again. Let's go to Spain for misinformation. No, let's go to France. <gasps> and among, <laughs> <laughs> are you panting? <laughs> trying like too hard. Dog. I'm trying too hard, <laughs> and it's still warm here. Okay. Yeah. Um. Leave it for the bloopers. 